The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. The word of God speaks to us. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, sis. Guys, good morning. How you doing? Uh, it's, uh, it's super fun being here. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors at Frontline, and uh, I serve as the lead pastor of our downtown congregation. God called my wife and I to plant Frontline downtown in 2005, and so I spend about 50% of my time downtown, and then I do my best to try to encourage and serve our leadership community churchwide. And so I bring you love and greetings from everybody downtown and from all of our congregations across the metro. And uh, it's always good for my soul to be at Frontline Edmond. You guys are so fun to get to open God's word with. And uh, I have so many friends here, so just people I miss. And then I get to meet new friends every time I show up. So thanks for your kindness to me. Um, <clears throat> My wife, Nancy, is one of my best friends. She was here at the nine o'clock. We've been married for 25 years, and uh, I'm really thankful for her today. As we talk about manhood, I just think about all the ways in which uh, her feminine strength and glory has helped serve me into the man that I'm called to be. And then I just think about the deep delight of being a father of a daughter who is 21 years old and a senior at UCO and just how precious it is to feel the heart of God for my daughter and then to feel a little fraction of his heart for his daughters in the room. He loves you. And then I, I also have the honor and the joy of being the father of a Marine who's doing really hard training right now and uh, miss him like crazy. He's in Southern California getting beat down in wonderful ways. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful ways. And so today as we pray, I wanna ask you guys to pray for me and I'm gonna pray for you and we're gonna do some work today. So, Father, there's no way for us to even possibly exhaust your goodness. You're not an absent dad. You're a present father in the room right now. You're not, you're not an inconsistent dad. You're not a violent dad. You are the father of lights and all fatherhood down here on this planet at its best reflects you. And when it fails, it shows our need for you. And I thank you that as we gather today and open your word, you're, you're present in this room to give good gifts. Father, there's ways in which I think that you wanna give some really precious gifts to your daughters today, to single women and married women, to moms. I pray that you would do that. Father, I, I also pray that you would answer our prayer that we've been praying as a group of pastors, that you would bring a work of revival and renewal to men. That men would receive the beautiful calling to reflect your fatherly goodness in the world. And uh, Lord, we just love you. We need you. Would you help us? We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, so let me just tell you where we were last week and where we're gonna go for the next two weeks. Um, we, we feel the urgency in this particular moment in the life of our church to call men to see the glory of masculine virtue. And that's not to the exclusion of feminine virtue. We think that there is glory and goodness in women and womanhood. And we believe that God has done a really deep work in the last five years in the life of our church in raising the water level of women's discipleship at Frontline. And it's a good thing. We want to see God do more of that. We have, a, we have a unique burden, though, in this season in the life of our church to come alongside brothers, not as a dad that's angry or a coach that's going to grab you by the face mask and swing you around, but as a group of fellow men, fellow men on the journey of having our manhood restored in Jesus to call men to follow Christ in uniquely masculine ways. So last week, Pastor David kicked us off by talking about Paul's exhortation to men to be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Um, <clears throat> if you know anything about the way I like to try to preach is I believe in nuancing things. I'm, I'm not a fan of trying to do sound bites. I'm not a fan of bumper stickers because truth needs nuance. And the truth of God's word is deep. 
And so today, I'm gonna have to resist the temptation to re-preach last week's sermon, not, not because it was a bad sermon. In fact, it was a great sermon. I listened to David preach uh, as I ran around the lake yesterday. It was a beautiful sermon, but I'm gonna have to resist the temptation to re-preach it um, because I don't want those of you that weren't here to be left in the dark. I want you to understand the heart of God as we dive into this sermon series, but I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that. So if you weren't here last week, go to masculinevirtue.net and we've got all of the teachings and trainings we did at our men's event, resources for men, and we have the sermon from last Sunday posted. You can get that. So forgive me if like you're stepping into the conversation today and you feel a little bit disoriented. Um, that's not our desire, but sometimes just by the nature of being limited people with finite resources, that happens. So I'm praying that you're able to get caught up today. Today, we're gonna talk about Paul's exhortation to act like men and to be strong. And then next Sunday, we're gonna end with the most important of all three, Paul's command that we should let all that we do be done in love, which is more than just an exhortation to do loving things. It's an exhortation to abide in the love of God and to live a life of blessing as we receive our Father's blessing. So today, Paul writes, act like men and be strong. And the first question I wanna ask is, why not just encourage us to act like people? Men and women have more in common than we have that separates us. The Bible's really clear that both men and women, by the nature of creation, are equal image bearers of the Most High God. Can I get an amen from somebody? Men and women are equal in value and dignity and worth before God. And in the new creation, through the redeeming work of Jesus, not only are men and women equal as image bearers, we are also co-heirs of the promises of God, brothers and sisters of the living God. In addition, both men and women are called in Scripture to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit's not a guy thing and it's not a lady thing, Amen. Men and women are called by the grace of God to grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Both men and women need the help of God to grow in the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And much of Christian character is not focused on masculinity or femininity. Both men and women need to grow in basic character as it relates to things like telling the truth. Amen? So today, as Paul exhorts men to act like men and to let their lives be marked by strength for the blessing of others, here's what we find. Even though men and women have so much in common, and even though there's so much beautiful ground that we share as brothers and sisters, there is such a thing throughout the entire story of the scripture as masculine virtue and feminine virtue. There is such a thing as masculine vices and feminine vices. Scripture does not warn wives about being violent with their husbands. Now, I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I've seen exceptions to every rule. I've seen women that were violent with their husbands. I've seen that happen. Scripture doesn't warn husbands against nagging their wives. I've been around the block long enough to see some husbands that nag their wives. But there are, there are both beautiful strengths and beautiful, wonderful virtues that God wants to cultivate in men and cultivate in women. And there are deep ways where masculinity and femininity get marred and twisted because of sin. What I want you to understand, which is a little bit mind-blowing because we are functionally Gnostic when it comes to manhood and womanhood, what I want you to see is that to follow Jesus to receive the grace of God, to trust in Jesus, to be born again, and to walk out the journey of discipleship is to follow Jesus into the renovation and restoration of your manhood and your womanhood. Because manhood and womanhood is core and essential to your personhood. In fact, here's something that's just absolutely mind-blowing and crazy. If you're a man, you are male or masculine down to the very depth of your soul. You have a masculine soul, and you'll have a new body in the new heavens and the new earth, and you'll have a masculine soul in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you are a sister bearing the glory of God as a woman, you are feminine down to the very bottom of your soul. 
and you will have a glorified body and you will have a soul without sin in the new heavens and the new earth and it will be a feminine soul and a woman's body. And what we find is that men and women, as we receive the grace of God in Jesus, are not called to interchangeability or to simple personhood in an androgynous and generic sense, we're called to figure out what does it look like to take the gift of manhood and the gift of womanhood and by the grace of God and with the help of God, see that part of our personage restored and renovated and used for the glory of God and the blessing of the world. So today, as Paul writes to guys and he says that we're to act like men and be strong, He's using shorthand language that everybody in the ancient world would have understood. Greeks would have understood it. Jews would have understood it. People in the Roman world would have understood it. To say act like men is a calling for men to cultivate courage, to cultivate courage. And to call men to be strong is to exercise the kind of capacity to bear weight that is essential for courage. Now, don't get sideways with me, sisters. Of course, a godly woman will have to cultivate courage. Of course you will. I've seen a woman give birth to two children. That was incredibly courageous. I've seen my wife step into the fray in relationships. I've seen my wife with mother bear tenacity engage all kinds of difficult situations. But hear me, this is really important. Courage and strength are foundational baseline masculine virtues. There's more that we could say about being a good man than courage and strength, but there's never less that we could say about being a good man than courage and strength. You can't be a Christian man and live a life that doesn't grow in courage and strength. And the essence of manhood in Scripture connects again and again to the calling of God in appropriate ways in various relationships to provide protection and provision and initiation that always requires a measure of courage and strength. One commentator called this sturdy piety, sturdy piety that we need to be the kind of men that cultivate sturdy piety as we respond to Jesus. Courage is directed outward for the blessing and benefit of others through sacrifice, through sacrifice. And strength is the resilience needed to put courage into action. It's the load-bearing weight of being a man who takes responsibility for himself, for his brothers, for his church, for his wife, for his kids, and for God's mission in the world. Now, there are all kinds of caricatures and silly, ridiculous reactions that abound in the world today. Uh, I was thinking this week about two men that I've known over the course of the last 20 years. One was a guy that I used to train with years and years ago who was one of the most physically imposing human beings I've ever met in my life. This guy was about 6'5". He weighed 225 with no body fat. He even had those weird lower ab things. Have you, guys, have you guys seen those things? They're grotesque, horrible. Uh, he, was, he was a frightening human being. He trained all the time. He wasn't just big and strong. He was really, really skilled. And I remember one time, one time in the gym with this guy, he got full mount and was elbowing me in the face. And I remember thinking, this is the moment where I need to find a different hobby. It's time to take up golf or running or gardening because this is helpless and terrifying. He was the kind of guy that just physically walked in the room and all the guys knew, well, that's, that's a physically intimidating specimen of a man. But here, here's the reality. He couldn't hold down a job. His friends couldn't depend on him. His wife tragically constantly got into trouble because she would take her need to be loved, seen, to all kinds of men that weren't her husband. He was not a man. He was not a man that I would want in a spiritual foxhole with me. He was not a guy that I would trust with my deepest struggles. He's not a guy that I would invite into the fray of trying to follow Jesus. There's another guy who I know who, because of severe physical disability, has literally never one time been able to pick up his own children. 
His wife has to open doors for him, for him to get in and out of rooms. She opens jars in the kitchen for him. And yet this man, with all of his physical limitations and physical weakness, has lived a life of such profound masculine courage and strength that his wife, who is brilliant, is flourishing and running hard after God and using her gifts in the world. His kids are challenged under the shade of their dad to grow intellectually, to grow physically, to grow spiritually. And so as we talk about courage and strength, we're not talking about reactions or caricatures. We're talking about some things that are deeply connected to the design of, to the design of God for men at the very essence of what it means to be a man. And so what I want to do today is take you to Judges chapter 6 for a picture. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there. It's in the Old Testament towards the beginning. And I want to go to Judges chapter 6 because I have a sense both as a dad and as a pastor, I have a sense that men in our moment, we need both stories and we need models. We need stories and we, have mo- and we need models. Um, stories help shape the imagination to both the heroic and the archetypal. Um, think Lord of the Rings, if you will, right? If you're a geek and have read Lord of the Rings, you know that that's a story of risk and heroism. It's a story that makes you wanna give your life in a great cause, And that does something beautiful to shape your imagination towards virtue, right? The same thing can happen in watching a movie like Lone Survivor, whatever it is that scratches that itch for you, that shows you the importance of brotherhood and mission and risk. We need those stories, but we also need models. Models help us to see how those virtues work their way into the ordinary trenches of life. A man doesn't just need to read Lord of the Rings, A man needs a father who doesn't ride into the gates of Mordor, but who goes to work and then comes home and is still present and prayerful and treats his wife as a friend. A man who doesn't abdicate the discipline of his children and make mom do it all, but together as a fellow laborer takes the lead in discipling his kids. So we need, we need both stories and we need models. And one of the many things I love about God's word is that it abounds in both stories and models. True stories, true stories that shape what's true and what's beautiful, what's ugly and what's vile, that help our imaginations experience redemption. And then also models where we see our own fragility, our, our, our weakness, our sin, our brokenness, and how Though men are called to slay dragons, usually the dragons look like figuring out how to reset your heart on your commute back home so that you can love and serve your family. All right, so Judges chapter six, and what I wanna say is that this is a really interesting picture of what sin does. I'm gonna read it to you. This is a reminder that sin is not just a list of arbitrary taboos that God gives people because he doesn't want your life to be deep. Sin is actually profoundly bent against human flourishing. This is Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They sinned. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of the Midian, uh, uh, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come in with their livestock and with their tents and they would come in like locusts in number and with their camels, they could not be counted. So that they would then lay waste to the land as they came in. Okay, here's the thing since the very beginning of humanity that we've believed, and it's a lie. We have believed again and again that we can maximize our joy and our potential if we'll just reject the authority of God. That if we could be our own God, and if we could define the good life on our own terms, we would experience more joy, more freedom, and more fruitfulness. Well, this passage and the entire testimony of Scripture, and if we're honest, our own lives and human history testify that when we sin against God, and we all do, instead of finding more joy and depth, we get dehumanized. These are human beings acting as if they're animals. Humans aren't made to live in dens. 
Sin dehumanizes. And instead of finding more freedom apart from God, they fall into bondage and slavery. And instead of being more productive and more fruitful and having a richer life, their land falls into disrepair and is laid waste. And for all of us, we experience both our sin nature and our sinful choices that lead us to places of bondage and barrenness and loss and a longing for joy that we can't experience. And what happens next is really beautiful. It's the gift of disillusionment. Disillusionment is not a bad thing. Disillusionment can be a profoundly good thing. Illusions aren't helpful. And Israel finally has this gift in Judges chapter 6, 6 of becoming sober, of opening their eyes. Here's what it says. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to God for help. I love this. They get to this moment where by God's grace, they have some clarity and sobriety to realize that doing things their own way as if they were their own gods have not led to the kind of life that they wanted. It's led to pain and brokenness. Everything beautiful has been marred. And so in this moment, they cry out to God. And what's amazing about the God of the Bible is that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what happens is they cry out to God as God does two things that are paradigms for what Jesus is going to fulfill. God does two things. He hears their prayer and he raises up a capital S savior who then raises up a lowercase s savior. There's a savior and a lesser savior. Let me read it to you in chapter six, starting verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and just circle angel of the Lord in your Bible and know that almost all Old Testament scholars agree that this angel of the Lord person is not just a run-of-the-mill angel or messenger. This is most likely, almost assuredly, the pre-incarnate son of God. The language of deity is going to be ascribed to this angel. This is most likely Jesus pre-incarnation showing up to bring rescue. And the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the terebinth, that's a kind of tree, at Ophrah, not Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and he's given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hands of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. William Mauser in his great book, Five Aspects of Man, rightly points out that Jesus in his saving work is a work of confronting evil. Jesus came in the fullness of time in a way that was greater even than this rescue of Old Testament Israel. In the fullness of time, Jesus came to confront evil, to live a perfect life and confront sin, to confront the kingdom of darkness, to confront the collaborative worldliness of the systems that we build, to face the grave and death itself. Mauser points out that he not only confronts evil, but he does so motivated by love for his beloved in peril. The Bible describes Jesus as a husband and his church as his bride. And Jesus's work of confronting evil is not just to vanquish evil so evil stops. It's motivated by love and affection to pursue his people that will be his. And thirdly, Jesus as savior confronts evil for his beloved at great personal cost to himself. It requires sacrifice. And what happens in Judges chapter six that's really interesting is this is a work where the Savior is gonna do a small work of saving, a pre-cross work of saving to rescue the, the children of Israel from the hands of the Midianites. And one of the ways that he's gonna do that is by raising up a lesser Savior in Gideon. And this is so important. Brothers, please hear me. This is part of the essence of what it means to be a redeemed man. 
Jesus is the only one that can save us from sin, Satan, and death. The only one. Jesus is our only hope in this life and the next. But to be a man that follows Jesus is to be called by Jesus to confront evil for a beloved in peril at great cost to yourself. And the kind of courage and strength that's needed for a man to exercise his masculinity in worthy ways in the world is the kind of strength that points to a confrontation with the forces of evil around us, motivated by love, even when it costs you. And what God is going to do in the life of Gideon is raise up this guy to reflect the work of the Savior. And what's amazing about this calling on Gideon is that nothing that the angel of the Lord says seemed to be the definition of how Gideon sees himself. In fact, Gideon, Gideon hears this crazy declaration of the angel of the Lord, hail valiant warrior, go in this might of yours and rescue Israel. And Gideon's like, who are you talking to? Like, think about Gideon's track record. Gideon is the youngest guy in the weakest family of the crummiest tribe and a part of a nation where the whole nation is oppressed and in slavery. Nothing about that is a resume of being a great savior. And not only that, but Gideon's inheritance from his father, his spiritual inheritance, is one that's anemic at best. We're going to be introduced to his dad in a minute, and his dad is an idolater. So instead of Gideon's dad training Gideon to love and fear God, Gideon's dad has invited his son to the worship of false gods. And there's even false idols in the compound of Gideon's own backyard. His backyard has false idols and Gideon's dad has modeled for Gideon abdication and disobedience to God. He has not received the inheritance of a godly father. And Gideon is shaking in his boots. He's threshing out wheat in the bottom of a wine press. So think about that. That's dirty, hot, really, really messy work if you're out in the open and the wind's blowing. But to thresh out wheat in the bottom of a pit means that his eyes would have been clogged. He would have been sweaty and filthy. And he's doing it all because he's scared for his life. And in the midst of all of that, all of that failure and weakness and insecurity and shame and fear and all the things that he wished were different, that weren't different, the angel of the Lord shows up and he says something crazy. He says, hail valiant warrior. Now listen, brothers, this is really important because the work of courage and the exercise of strength is not something that you do to try to create an identity before God. It's the work that flows out of your identity in God. Because the work of Jesus on the cross to pay for your sins, and the work of Jesus as he was raised from the dead, and the abiding power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you if you've trusted in Jesus, brings you in to a declaration of new identity that renames you as a son or as a daughter in Christ. To be born again means that there's a lot of names that you've received because of your own failings and the failings of others that actually aren't the truest thing about you anymore. And it's wild to me, I'm aware of this as a dad that so wants my kids to thrive and flourish. Even a dad that loves God and does his best is gonna fall short and fail and at times accidentally give his children names that are not good and true names. And if we could be honest, we could go around this room and we could hear stories from all the men in this room about the various ways that you have received an identity, you've been named by the failings of your dad or the absence of your dad, by your own failings, names like weakling or failure failure or loser or addict. And in the midst of all those names that feel so true, The work of God in Jesus, the grace of God in Jesus is this powerful work to give you a truer name, an abiding name as beloved of God and to live out of that new identity as one who's willing to, at great cost to yourself, lay down your life for the blessing and benefit of the beloved in strength to figure out what that means. And what's gonna happen in the life of Gideon that's really practical and helpful are three things that he has to flesh out as he tries to walk out courage and strength in light of this identity. 
as the angel of the Lord names him, the, the battle's not over. In fact, in some ways, the battle is just beginning. And the same thing is true for all the men in this room. If you've received your inheritance in Jesus, you've been named in Jesus, the battle's not over. In fact, in some ways, for the first time, you're just seeing that there's a battle. <laughs> and the names are still really powerful, and the failings are still real, and the voice of shame and condemnation is really loud. So how do we cultivate the kind of strength and courage that's used for the blessing and benefit of others. I'm gonna give you three things to think about. Three things to think about. Number one, what we see in this story is that the presence of God is your strength. The presence of God is your strength. So Gideon argues with the angel of the Lord and he gives his negative resume. Have you ever rehearsed like, the anti-resume before God. Gideon does that. He's like, here's all the reasons why I'm not qualified to do this work. Here's all the reasons why you have the wrong guy. Here's all the reasons why I can't do it. And then the angel of the Lord responds and the Lord says to him in verse 16, but I will be with you, which I love because the angel of the Lord doesn't refute all that. He's not like, no, actually you have a great dad and actually you're from a really mighty family and actually you're just innately a good leader of men into battle. You're an awesome general because you know, you know how to hide in a wine press. It's not power of positive thinking. It's not alternate reality. No, no, no. The source of his strength is this, but I will be with you. <laughs> yeah, man, like you're messed up. Yes, your dad's failed you. Yes, there's all kinds of ways where the odds are stacked against you. Yes, there's weakness in your life, but here's the reality. Your strength and your courage is gonna hinge upon the fact that you're not alone that I'm with you. This is the pattern of God calling men to confront evil for the beloved through costly sacrifice in the entirety of the Bible. When God called Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh, Moses is like, you definitely have the wrong guy. I have a speech impediment. I'm not going into the court of the most powerful ruler on planet earth and gonna be God's mouthpiece. I, I can't even communicate coherently to the people that are not trying to kill me. And what does God say in Exodus chapter three, he says, but I will be with you. And then God raises up uh, Joshua, who was Moses's apprentice. And Joshua has this really hard job of like, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with a whole generation dead, he has to lead the people of God into the promised land and engage in a struggle with giants. It's a huge fight for the beloved. And you know Joshua's thinking through the lens of his insecurity and fear and he's seen all the ways the children of Israel have blown it in the wilderness. But what does God say? I will be with you. I'll be with you. And then we get to the new covenant and it's really wild that after the resurrection of Jesus, he appears to multiple people in multiple places and before he ascends back into heaven to the right hand of the Father, he's got this ragtag group of disciples who don't have bragging rights when it comes to track record and their own excellence. Like Thomas is there. Thomas refused to believe the reports of Jesus's resurrection. Peter's there. He actually blasphemed before God in denying that he even knew Jesus. All the guys have gone back to their previous lines of work when Jesus was arrested. These guys have blown it. They failed. And then Jesus gives them this crazy task to go into all the world and to preach the good news of the gospel to all creation. It's this costly, courageous act of strength for the benefit of the beloved that will take deep sacrifice from each of them. And they're terrified. And Jesus tells them in Matthew 28, it's the part of the Great Commission that we tend to forget. And behold, I am with you always. See, here's the thing that's crazy. Brothers, your ability to be a good friend, which is so core and central to figuring out godly masculinity. You need spiritual friendship, not a life of quiet desperation, but a life of communion with God and with brothers. And your need for spiritual friendship doesn't hinge on how good you are at life hacks and being a friend. Your ability to engage in communion is connected to the fact that you're learning to commune with God who's with you. God's given you a profound assignment if you're a husband. Like, here, here's something that kind of blows my mind. Like, there are ways that Jesus wants to love and form your wife that he won't do directly. He actually calls you to engage her so that he can form and shape and love her. 
Don't, I mean, don't get, that's Ephesians 5. There's ways that God wants to bless and serve the woman that he brought you, who the Bible describes as a gift from God and the favor of the Lord. There's ways that he wants to bless her life, that he wants to bless her through your presence. And that's terrifying. How can you possibly do that? He's with you. Can we just stop like, both motherhood and fatherhood are holy and terrifying simultaneously. Like, here's, it's crazy to me that God's the one that forms children in their mother's womb. He's the one that creates them. Um, he's the one that orders their days. He knows the number of hairs on their head. But then he calls mothers and fathers to shape them and form them. And by the way, like, the first place of accountability in that work of parenting the first conversation God's going to want to have about an abdication of that is going to be with dads. And that holy assignment to like teach kids in the fear and adoration of the Lord, to prepare them, to love them, to be like a bow that launches them into the world, that is completely terrifying. Kids are immortal image bearers of the Most High God and they're sinners by nature and choice. They're terrifying and they're hard. And, and here's fine print, like we have so many young parents at Frontline Edmond and this is like the most depressing thing that I could possibly tell you. <laughs> Parenting adult kids is even harder. So buckle up your seatbelt. Put on your seatbelt. I'm not taken away from how hard potty training is. I, I talked to a mom in the nine. I was like, hey, what's going on? What's new in your life? She's like, potty training. Like, I wouldn't do that again for a billion dollars. That's a complete soul-crushing beatdown. But adult kids ain't easy. What a holy, terrifying thing to be given such profound responsibility in helping shape and form an immortal image bearer of God. It's terrifying. But guess what? He will be with you. In all the assignments he has for you as men, the source of your strength is not puffing out your chest. It's not your own ability or your own capacity. In fact, when you realize that you're in over your head, you're usually right where God wants you because there you have to depend on the presence and power of God. Right? The source of your strength, the source of your strength is the presence of God. Number two, we also see in this story that fear and insecurity don't just go away. That's like really good news. Um, sometimes I read these stories and I'm like, I, don't, I think I'm a Christian, uh, but maybe not. And then I read stories like this and I'm like, oh yeah, fear and insecurity don't automatically vanish when we have an encounter with the living God. Gideon, in this story, is going to talk face-to-face -face with the angel of the Lord, and then three different times, he's going to basically say, yeah, but I don't believe you. Can you prove it? He's going to ask for signs. He's going to say things like this. After the angel of the Lord said, I will save Israel by you, Gideon looks at God and he says to this, Gideon said to God, verse 36, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, like, he's just straight up like, I, I mean, you said you're going to do that, but I don't know. Do I have assurance of that? And then he does this weird deal where he asks for intricate fleeces, and he it's weird. What's the point? Well, the point is, he doesn't have his fear and insecurity automatically vanish, and yet in the midst of his wrestling with God with the fear and insecurity, God's really patient and present with, present with him. God keeps speaking, and he keeps working with him. This is why... We need God's word to be open, brothers, as we wrestle with fear and insecurity. This is why we need other men in our lives that remind us of our identity in Jesus. This is why we need to gather with God's people. This is, why, this is why we need to pray with our wives. This is why we need to surround ourselves with reminders of the gospel. I'm not recommending you lay out fleeces because God has spoken through the ultimate sign and seal of an empty tomb that your identity is new that God has called you. And then lastly, lastly, we learn from this story that a life of courage and strength starts small and close to home. It starts small and close to home. Look at verse 25. This is my favorite part of the whole story. So God's calling Gideon to go and face the hordes of Midian, tens of thousands of enemies. But before he gets sent to go engage in that battle, look what happens. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal 
that your father has. And cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Those are idols. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Okay, this is awesome. This is so cool. This is a picture of what God does in the life of David where David doesn't start by fighting Goliath. First, he had to face the lion and the bear. Gideon doesn't start by facing down the hordes of Midian. Gideon's first act of obedience starts in his own backyard as he removes his dad's idols. And it's something that he engages in even under the cover of darkness. It's not like, it's not an epic story of irrefutable courage. It's just a small act of a small act of obedience that cultivates courage and builds strength. For so many men in our church, we're waiting for the epic. We're waiting for some kind of big, like, lone survivor experience or some Lord of the Rings experience. And usually that's just not how God works. God cultivates, he cultivates a life of strength and courage for the blessing and benefit of others with quiet things that start close to home that most people won't even celebrate as heroic. Years ago, um, years ago, my son, when he was first getting into sports, he was probably four or five, and he came to me, he's like, Dad, I either want to do baseball or wrestling. Well, I know a lot of you guys love baseball. I hate baseball, and the idea of sitting through Saturday baseball games was soul-crushing, and wrestling's awesome. So I was like, buddy, I think wrestling is the perfect sport for you. So we, we put Elijah in wrestling, and uh, the first month of wrestling practice, it's just fun. It's just like little kids, and they're learning basics and just having a blast. And he'd come home from practice. I was like, how, how was it, buddy? He's like, oh, it's so fun. I love to play wrestling. And then a month or so goes in, and, and we went to the first wrestling tournament. And I don't know if you know anything about Oklahoma wrestling culture for little kids, but it's a cult, man. It's a full-on cult. Um, these little kids are like little little Spartan savages with mullets. <laughs> little terrible, horrible little kids with mullets. They, most of these kids in Oklahoma, like they start wrestling like before they're potty trained and weaned. And we show up and my son is just there to have fun. He just wants to play wrestling. And he gets on the mat and the ref blows the whistle and this kid walked out and instantly I knew it was going to go so bad for my son. This kid had like hardened hatred in his eyes. He, it was game face. This kid was ice cold and Elijah smiling at him. And the kid comes in and just threw like both a beautiful and slightly dirty cross face to Elijah's nose. And Elijah just stopped wrestling and he turned to me with this look on his face like, why have you betrayed me? <laughs> like, you can just see his face. Like, I thought playing wrestling was going to be fun. And uh, we got to the end. The kid, like, instantaneously, instantaneously uh, got Elijah on his back and pinned him. And afterwards, Elijah's just crying. His nose hurt. He was embarrassed. Playing wrestling turns out to actually suck. And his coach, he's a good friend of mine, a member of Frontline Downtown, his, his coach came up to him and he said, hey, Elijah, it's okay, buddy. He said, this happens to everybody at their first wrestling tournament. And one of two things happen. They either quit or they become wrestlers. Now, I tell you that story not so that you can get offended and say, how dare I think that character formation is only connected to contact sports, because I don't think that. Like, you can learn the same lesson in learning to read Dostoevsky, working with wood, getting rejected by a good woman. There's a lot of ways God, there's a lot of ways God bloodies our noses. But here's why I tell you that story. It is, it is the little, simple, close to home acts of obedience and response to God that cultivates the kind of courage and resilience needed for the bigger acts of obedience. It's, it's the little stuff. It's the stuff that people are not going to celebrate. It's the stuff that nobody's even going to notice. It's opening God's word. It's prioritizing spiritual friendship. It's learning how to actually date your wife. It's learning how to like do whatever it takes to war against 
the computer you carry in your pocket as it tries to deform you. It's, it's saying, hey man, like I would rather make a little bit less money and be present to raise my kids. It's a thousand little things like that that don't seem big, they don't seem significant, but they actually have a, a cascading, deepening effect in forming virtue in building the kind of men of character that are needed for the world. And that strength is built slowly. One, one more Elijah story. Um, before Elijah <clears throat> shipped out for the Marines, he was, he was transitioning to a different kind of training for the particular MOS or the job that he has. He, there's a lot of stuff he had to do to get ready for that. And uh, he had done contact sport. He had done combat sports. He had done Muay Thai and wrestling, but he had never done long endurance stuff. And, uh, you know, for long ruck, ruck marches and the stuff he was going to have to do, he just needed to run more. And uh, so we got together and did a, a marathon training plan. And, you know, we just dove into it. And we got a few weeks in, and my son, who had never run more than like three miles, he's out running around the lake with me. We're doing a 13-miler, and he starts limping. And, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, hey, man, are you okay? He's like, yeah, my leg hurts. I'm like, oh, you just need to run through it. Just, just need to run through it. That's my good fatherly advice. That's my advice for so much of life. You just need to run through it. You just haven't learned that, you know, you're not going to make gains running without a little pain. You just, you're just candy-legging it. You just need to get a little tougher. Um, well, two weeks go by and he's still limping and, and mom in her wisdom steps in. She's like, hey, jackass, you need to take him to the doctor. I'm like, yes, ma'am, that is correct. I need to take him to the doctor. Took him, took him to see Dr. Stu. Stu's like, yeah, he's got a stretch fracture and you're an idiot. Well, listen, I, I tell you that story just because like, that's so much of the spiritual life. It's it's the, little, it's the little things that build over time the load-bearing capacity to have other people depend on us. It's not all at once. It's not overnight. It's not huge. It's not fancy. It's little stuff. It's little stuff. So here's what I'd love to do as we close today. Um, sisters, thanks, thanks for your engagement of this, and thanks for um, even the responsiveness on your faces. Like, I just sense in the room instead of enmity where it's like, well, why are we talking to the guys? I, I sense your sisterly affection for your brothers and it, it's like medicine for my soul. That's countercultural and really beautiful. So thanks for that. And uh, I think it would be really special if we could just take a moment and ask the men to stand. And if my sisters would just join with me in praying for these guys. So brothers, if you'd stand, if you're willing. And I just want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and There are certain names you've been given through your own sin and failure, through the sin and failures of others that hang around your neck like chains. So many times with, uh, with our sexual sin and sexual sins of others, especially that stuff becomes such a seared identity. Failures, failures of pursuit of our wives Think of even like how scary and hard it is to figure out how to pursue a teenage girl's heart as a dad. It's so, so hard. So many names get added and stacked upon each other. And I just want you to offer those to the Lord. I want to tell you that the truest thing about you, if your faith is in Jesus, the truest thing about you is that you are a beloved son of God. And in the midst of your dependence and need and weakness and even places you've failed. The Lord wants to love and serve the beloved through you. So God, I just thank you for my friends and I pray that Father, you would do a sovereign work of exchanging names that aren't true with the truth of who these men are in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that they would experience today the voice of their Heavenly Father speaks to the very depth of their masculine soul and calls them sons. God, what an amazing thing that your holy word says, act like men. 
which indicates that though masculinity is marred and broken, the essence of mature, true, redeemed masculinity is so good. It's so good that the good God commands men to cultivate it. So God, I pray that this week you would give us a couple of places where you're called us to step out in courage and to cultivate strength. Maybe it starts with just figuring out when we're going to open your word and talk to you. Maybe there's a conversation we're avoiding with our wives that we need to have today. Maybe there's an area of unconfessed, unrepented of sin that we need to deal with. And uh, in all the ways we argue against what you're asking us to do, I just pray we would hear your voice saying, but I'll be with you. But I'll be with you. Um, Lord, I pray that the men of this church would be men who have a legacy of blessing that literally forms and serves and honors their wives and a legacy of blessing that would affect generations that kids would be raised and launched out and grandkids would be raised and launched out. And God, I just, even as I look at the men in the room, I know some of them feel alone and isolated. It's so weird that we could stand in a group of men and still be by ourselves. I pray that you would deliver us from that kind of isolation. Isolation. Teach us to fight for each other. God, I thank you that you have good gifts for your daughters today. I pray that you would bless them, fill them, and anoint them, and do a deep work in them. God, I I think of my own dad's heart for my daughter when her countenance is downcast, just the deep burden and love I have, and when her countenance is joyful, just the delight that is to me, and I'm a sinful man. So I just pray that my sisters would feel your fatherly delight in them, your love for them. So God, uh, thank you that you're working. Thank you that you're moving. Have your way today.